straight from the Bible today. Um, because that is what you're going to have today. <laughs> we are settling into this sermon series walking through uh, the final stages of the book of Genesis. And it is the uh, story of Joseph primarily. But actually today we'll take a moment from not looking at Joseph as if you were with us last week, you're able to uh, be exposed to the life of Joseph, the dreams he's had, the prophecies that were spoken about his life, that he would be uh, predominant among all his brothers and everyone in his family would actually bow down to him, that he would be humbled greatly but then exalted greatly. We take a pause from that. Uh, as far as the narrative of Genesis unfolds, to look at one of his brothers now, uh, a brother named Judah. And you'll find his story in uh, Genesis 38. I invite you to turn there. This story of Judah uh, seems to not really fit or be related to what we're hearing uh, in the life of Joseph, uh, but it is connected in some way. It is a story of hypocrisy. Uh, it is a story unlike all the other Bible uh, stories that we have uh, in which we must put ourselves in here and see uh, that this is not uh, just Judah, this is you and I. Uh, this story was meant for us. And, and all the stories of the scripture, uh, we're not the hero. <laughs> if you ever think you're the hero, if you ever think you're David going to slay uh, Goliath, the, the, the giant, uh, you got it wrong. You got it backwards. That's not us. Uh, we're the hypocrites. Uh, we're going to be Judah here. So I invite you to try... Uh, to impose yourself upon the text in a healthy way uh, and understand uh, what's being done. This is God's word. Uh, Genesis 38. Um, after speaking briefly about uh, the story of Joseph, it says that it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, uh, Judah uh, saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Uh, Judah was in uh, Chezib. When she bore him. This is all in the land of Canaan. The promised land that was given to Abraham. That's the point here. It's all in that region that Abraham was told would be his promised land. No one is uh, throughout Genesis really encouraged to get wives or family from the land of Canaan. Uh, and he's doing that. Uh, not very good thing. As we'll see. <laughs> uh, and Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Anon, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Anon knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up, the youngest of the three. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. 
So Tamar went uh, and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anayim, where it is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will give you a young goat for, from the flock. And she said, What will you give me as a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet, your cord, and your staff. That is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went her way, taking off her veil and putting on the garments of widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where's the cult prostitute who was from Anayim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place say that no cult prostitute has ever been there. Judah replied, Let her keep the things. Let, her be, let it be her own, uh, so we may not be laughed at. You see, I sent the goat, and you did not find her. And about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And the Lord said, I mean, Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I, since I have not given her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in the womb. And when she was in labor, one put out his hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name is called Perez. And afterwards, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. And so here is the underlying story of Judah, the brother of Joseph, who is one of twelve of the sons of Jacob. We take a moment as the narrative unfolds through Genesis to not look at Joseph and all of a sudden jump right into uh, this story of Judah. Understanding why is because we're told as the 
book of Genesis unfolds throughout generations is that the very last section we are in is actually called, in Genesis uh, 37-2, the generations of Jacob. So it really isn't just a story about Joseph. It's a story about the generation of Jacob, the father of Joseph. That means all the other sons that come from him, one of them, which is Judah. Now, the reason Judah is so important here is because the whole point of Genesis is it is a book of generations. It's about the brothers competing to see who will be predominant, who will be preeminent among them. That's why, if you remember, all of the brothers hated Joseph so much because he presumed that he was going to be uh, the one to have all the inheritance, the one in which all of the other ones would bow down to. We have, in the order of the birth, the very first son was Reuben. And then it followed that there were Simeon and Levi. And here we have Judah, who is the fourth of the oldest of the twelve. The reason we're being told about Judah is because we've already been told about the other three. Reuben, Levi, Simeon, the first three oldest. Their stories were all stories of, well, just failure. Stories of the things that when you hear about them, they fit for a Jerry Springer episode. Reuben disqualified himself as being preeminent in Genesis 35 by sexual perversity with a woman named Billa, which is his father's wife. Simon and Levi disqualified themselves in Genesis 34 by extreme violence slaughtering a whole city of Shechem. The fourth in line here is Judah. And we're told his story. And I don't know about you, but it seems like he might have disqualified himself. That's why it's here. Failure after failure after failure. Codified here particularly, Judah as being the premier hypocrite. The one who actually has no ability to see what is true. Hypocrisy in the sense that we project a behavior that suggests a higher or more noble standard than what actually is the case. And you and I, we all can raise our hands and say, that is us. That is exactly who we are. We project a personal standard of uh, nobility or character that actually we don't fully possess. The, the honest truth of it is. And the story is presented before us to see, well, that's pretty clear how Judah failed so terribly. To pause for a moment and think, maybe this is about me a little bit. This hypocrisy. Actually, the word hypocrite means to be an actor. It actually means hypo under crinane, which is interpreter. The under interpreter. The one who wears the mask. Who, who is under the mask and wants to be interpreted through the mask. That's really what a hypocrite is. It meant at first really nothing more than just an actor. Someone who is playing a part. And of course now we use it to mean more than that. That someone is not on a stage or in a movie. But in our actual daily life we are seeking to be interpreted through the mask. We don't want anyone to see us for who we really are. We would rather you see this and you can find us or be interpreted through that veil. Through the mask. And that's hypocrisy. And that's exactly what Judah's been doing here. Because there's a difference between, obviously, what happens on the stage, what happens in the movies, or in the TV shows. 
In that context, we have a, an expectation of suspended disbelief. And when I watch a movie, you ever watch a movie with somebody and uh, maybe it's like a superhero movie or something and uh, they're already wearing tights and capes and flying and breaking stuff and then someone says, yeah, well, that, 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 a woman that size could never beat up a man that size. I'm like, well, you didn't say anything when he was shooting lasers out of his eyes like last scene. Like, why, why all of a sudden now is it not believable? I mean, the whole movie's not believable. If you have to suspend disbelief to enjoy the movie. And if you watch a movie with someone that is not willing to suspend disbelief, well, it's not very enjoyable. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that could never happen. Well, yeah, the movie. Right? That's, that's the, they're wearing masks. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be dressed like that in public. Um, but the problem is, what if it's not a movie? That's where we feel the hypocrisy in the second sense of the term. It's not a movie. We're walking around. But sometimes there's cracks. Sometimes we can see through the mask. And then we say, now that is not right. For this is not a movie. This is life. So the stage is set, if we were to say this was a play. We know that the Lord has not called us and actually precluded us from this kind of lifestyle. He said a phrase like this, simply let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Be honest. Don't be hypocritical. Say what you mean. Be yourself. So that we would say actually yes to the Lord. You are my Lord in my family life. And you are my Lord with my friends. You are my Lord. I say yes to you when I worship. But I also say yes to you. You are my Lord with all my words throughout the days. See that to balance that, to find that, to grow in that, to mature through that, is to get rid of that hypocrisy. But the play is set, the stage is set for Judah. As we are going to see through his uh, story, through this uh, play presented before us, in its clearest terms, hypocrisy. Now the stage is set for us particularly as we're told that he has a friend, right? Hira, an Adulamite, someone from Canaan, the promised land of Israel. A, a wife, we're not told uh, the name of his wife, which is significant, because it's his wife, but we're told about this woman named Tamar. His wife is simply referred to as the daughter of Shua, another Canaanite. Together they come, and they produce three children, three sons particularly, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And as the scene begins to set, we find that tragedy ensues. That there is a death. That is Onan, Shelah, but the first, Ur, marries a woman named Tamar and dies. And we're not told why. The Lord simply says, because of his wickedness, because of his sin, the Lord put him to death. Onan is given to Tamar. And we're told again, because of his wickedness, because of his sin, the Lord put him to death. And then Judah pauses, and his youngest, Shelah, is kept from Tamar, thinking, this woman's like the black widow. All my sons are dying. And out of fear, he makes a promise to say, well, he's too young now, wait for him to grow, and then you may be married. So he betrothes her. He betrothes her to Tamar. 
uh, her to him, Shelah. Which is a very bizarre practice of why these brothers are being moved toward this one woman. And it is only explained um, through what's called a leveret marriage. It's an ancient law that's not just in Israel, but throughout ancient cultures in the East. There was a law uh, that was fairly common that it would be the in-law, the in-law of a brother. That if the brother who did not produce any children died, it was the obligation of another brother to come and actually make that lineage continue. Because of the actual legal transactions and the, the state of that civilization, it was necessary that there should be someone to carry on that lineage. Particularly it finds its expression in Deuteronomy uh, 25, is giving the rationale why the story is the way it is. Why all these brothers are obligated to do what they are doing. In Deuteronomy 25, we're told that the first son that this in-law brother bears should not be his son, but it would actually be the son of his deceased brother to carry on his brother's name, particularly his name, so that his name would not be blotted out from memory, blotted out from Israel. And that is the context particularly of how it relates to Genesis. We have to step back to make sense of the story. It's not just the story of these brothers and this woman Tamar. It's the whole story of what the gospel of Genesis is relating. The gospel of Genesis. In Genesis 3.15 we're told, God has promised the serpent his destruction. He promised him, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed and hers. And he will strike your head and you will bruise his heel. There is a generational battle ensued from the very beginning. And the inception of sin was also the beginning of redemption. And that redemption was to be organic. That redemption was to be generational. That redemption was to be through a seed. And so all that is interpreted into this episode to look at the whole book of Genesis from beginning to end to see why this is so important, why this was so uh, sinful. The whole book of Genesis is a series of ten generations. And all the references to seed from uh, Adam to Noah and the sons of Noah and Shem and Terah and Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and the final of the ten generations rubriced or structured in the book of Genesis is the generation of Jacob, the generation we are in now, of which Judah is part of. We're never going to hear about seeds again until the King David. The Bible stops talking about seeds entirely after the book of Genesis. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, says, After Genesis... We do not hear again of the promised seed from the loins of any hero of the faith until God promises David a seed from his own loins in 2 Samuel 7.12. Do you realize as we are closing the book of Genesis with Jacob, all the way to the time of David to come, no more talk of this. No more talk of generations or seeds or promised stomping of the head of Satan. By the seed of the woman. The reason Onan's sin was that sin. Is he could not see 
what was going on. He had no faith or eyes to see that there is an organic connection between the imminent seed that was promised all the way back from the exile of the garden, that the snake should be conquered through the seed, and connecting that to this moment, that that seed is not only imminent, but actually organically connected to flow into a large group of people. That there is a lineage, an organic connection as if it were to be a seed to a root, to a trunk, to a tree, to a branch, all the way to Romans 11 in which we're told that the whole body of people, the people of God are nothing more than a tree in which branches are grafted in and taken out. There was an organic unity to God's plan of redemption uh, diachronically through time and space that that was part of this story. And him not seeing that God's redemption was in this very thing because of the promises given through the generations of Jacob was his sin, pure wickedness. We're told particularly because the child wouldn't be his heir. It would be another firstborn child that would have been born from someone who is him but actually competing for him as far as inheritance. Glory, title, power, you know, all this stuff everyone else loves. The idols of this world. That is why. He didn't want the competition. But behind all of what seemed to be competition and, 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 and inheritance rights and more property and land and money, of course he doesn't want another firstborn child competing for him in that. Behind it all, underneath it all, was really the promise of the seed of the woman crushing the seed of the serpent. And it was supposed to happen through, literally, the seed of men. The seed of men, which is the word here. Jesus coming through, breaking through, breaching through. Judah's sin in this is his hypocrisy. The stage is set, and now we put the costume on, the masks. We're told that Tamar heard that her father-in-law was going to a sheep shearing festival, which is usually, in that context, a very large thing with a lot of celebration, food and wine and being drunk and doing stupid things. And so here he's doing that. Everything that would be required to do a proper uh, sheep shearing, I guess. Um, so she took off her uh, widow's garments and she wrapped herself. She put on the costume. She played the part, you see. The stage is set. And she set herself with a veil over her face, a mask that is, so that she's unidentifiable. She sat at the entrance of the roadside, the place where prostitutes would be, on the side of the road, at the truck stop, doing their thing. And she presents herself that way. Doesn't say it, but lets every inference be made and in a strong fashion. And what ensues next is nothing more than a simple business transaction. Here's a goat. Where's the pledge? Where's your collateral? And she says, please give me these seals, your seal, your cord, and your staff, which is a rich man's credit card in the ancient world. A seal that would be wrapped with a cord around your neck most likely or carried somewhere was either a stamp or some type of circular rolling device that would be pressed into soft clay and it would leave an image, an emblem, a symbol that was unique to that person. It was just like signing or swiping your card at any place. That that was your financial honorary identifier for any transaction or legal endeavor that you would take. 
and he just gives the whole credit card to her. And the staff, that thing, a symbol of nobility, again, Judah, presumably a wealthy man, and the staff on the top was usually marked with some type of emblem or image or indicator that it was his staff. Two things that particularly could not be associated anywhere else. Anything that is uh, questionable. This was Judah's stuff. This was his identifying marks. And she got them off him. And then we're told nothing more that she conceived and went away. She conceived and went away. He went to his place and she went back and put on her widow's garment. In a furtive kind of way, a roundabout way, a shameful way, he's embarrassed. He sends his own friend on his behalf to try to deliver the price of a prostitute, which is apparently a goat, and can't find anyone. And what he says, and this is the hypocrisy of it all, the shame that you and I know so well is, well, we tried. Stop asking. People will laugh at us. And here we are in the 21st century, and this is the only story we know about Judah. Uncomfortable. Generations have been laughing at him. How God sees our sin. We say, well, we don't want anyone to laugh at us. But his story is plainly seen as we see Judah's today. He sees us that way. There's nothing we hide from him. There's nothing that is a shame that is not clear when God himself is light, dwells in unapproachable light. It is a fearful thing. You can see why we wear masks, of course. That thought is fearful. At least we'd rather be under the presumption that we're covered up with our masks than actually be in the presence of the living God. So he says, stop. It's embarrassing. Quit asking. We tried. Let her have my stuff. I'll get a new credit card. Three months later, three months, he's told, tomorrow your daughter-in-law is pregnant, but she doesn't have a husband. The word particularly is she's pregnant by immorality. Zina is the word that particularly deals with immorality of prostitution. Your daughter-in-law, Judah, has been playing a prostitute. And without a skip. The next line is, bring her out to be burned. If that doesn't scare your own psychology, the height of hypocrisy, let her be burned for doing what I do. Bring her out and let her be burned, he says. The height of this hypocrisy is, In God's law, sexual morality before marriage, adultery, can be dealt with by some type of penalty in Exodus 22, paid, or moving toward a marriage covenant. But sexual morality within the confines of marriage was a death penalty. Deuteronomy 22, if a man has relations with a woman who is betrothed, they both should be stoned to death. Now do you see that? He betrothed his daughter to Shayla, his son. She is a betrothed woman by his own doing. And she is an adulterer by his own doing. 
and she should be stoned, and he would have her burned to go even before or beyond the law of God, to actually give a more painful, longer, gruesome death that he himself is guilty of. That if she deserves to die, he deserves to die. That this is the word of God for us today to pause and consider. Who are we? Our hypocrisy, our such small lack of self-reflection, that as Jesus was so right to say, we would clearly find the speck in someone's eye and ignore the, pl- ignore the plank in our own. Like that is frightening to realize this is not just one random man. This is humanity. This is you and I. This is we. Tamar is betrothed this way. And here is the day of judgment. The day of judgment. Jesus has said nothing concealed. Nothing concealed will not be revealed. Nothing hidden will not be made known. Luke 12. He says, bring her out. She must be burned. She comes out and says, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. The fearful thing of God's judgment is that he has your card. He has your seal. He has your identifying mark. Every sin, every place your hand is touched, your fingerprints lie. That even the dust, heaven and earth, the rocks will cry out. All the created world will bear witness that we are the sinners. And our mark will be plastered on everything we've ever done, presented before us, before our eyes, and the whole world in the Bahima, great white throne judgment of God, listed out throughout Revelation and the rest of Scripture. And that it would be our seals, our cords, our staff, our unique marker placed on it all. And the great unmasking, Judah has been unmasked. His hypocrisy has been foreshown is what it is. She wore a mask to unmask his heart. And he confesses conversion, salvation to truly come to Christ is this. He says, she is more righteous than I. What can I say? The evidence is here. I am the sinner. I am condemned. That is, this small little lack of self-reflection because of such an inflated, large, ego of self-righteousness. He could not see any of that because he was so content with himself in his own self-righteousness. And Judah, I mean, Tamar has actually unmasked him in this whole way. As Jesus, who sees all of our lives as plainly as we see this story, has warned us in Matthew 7, 1, judge not, judge not, Do not add extra judgments on other people in their lives. Don't you know that to the extent to which you judge others, you too will be judged? Whatever judgment you pronounce, it will be measured back to you. Romans 2, Paul condemns humanity by saying, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment, you, the judge, practice the very same thing. This type of condemnation or this type of judgment that we project on other people, we are so slow to see that it is us. 
that we point to ourselves, that we condemn ourselves by the judgment of others. For the fact is that all of us, if we claim to be as followers of Christ, God's people, part of the old Israel, is that we would say we are hypocrites. We are. And there's a good way in which you should say that. We are hypocrites. That's the reason you're a Christian, of course. He on the cross is for us because we understand that we are the sinner. We can say with Judah, He is righteous, not I. To come to that realization, to be put in the place and with the mask is taken off, that is fine. We will take on that title as being called hypocrites. Leviticus 19 says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That is our confession. That's the front door. How do we profess that without ever saying, of course, we are hypocrites? I am not holy. I have never been holy. On one day of my life, as holy as the Lord. I have never loved the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength for one whole hour. We all have fallen and hit this mark. We all are hypocrites because we project this higher or more noble standard than what is actually the case. That's the whole reason or the point of trusting in Christ. But see, there's another type of hypocrisy that we cannot tolerate. The other type is to take the mask and to keep it on. See, the failure to confess our sins is a failure to take that mask off. That we would actually mask ourselves from our true personality, pretending to be someone we're not. Which is, in other words, to say, not simply confessing our sins Moment by moment, minute by minute. Let those things pile up and you will have layers over your face in which you won't even know who you really are anymore. Unconfessed sin is nothing more than that mask. A mask in which you are presenting yourself to be someone you are not. So don't lie to yourself or others. If we confess our sins, it's like taking this mask off. If we do not confess our sins, they pile on and pile on. And unconfessed sins become layers upon layers in which we forget that we are the Lord's and He is ours. Because we look at our lives and say, how much disconnect can there be? The freedom in this, in Christ. I remember listening to a Jim Carrey interview, which are pretty eccentric. Because uh, Jim Carrey is an eccentric man. Uh, he's a gifted uh, actor, famous uh, comedian. Um, made famous in the 90s by one particular movie called The Mask. Put the mask on as an entirely different person. Liked himself better with the mask than not with the mask. It's funny that his career would turn that way. Because what Jim Carrey is known for is in between his movies, he stays in character. Uh, one time, a lot of the um, actors and actresses he works with were complaining because of his huge ego. Uh, because when he was once uh, doing a documentary on uh, Andy uh, Kaufman, re replaying this uh, as a comedian, Andy Kaufman from the 80s, uh, he would not, once the scene was over, stop acting like Andy Kaufman. And it was driving everybody nuts. And everyone had to refer to him as Andy. And he spoke in a high nasally voice and was being goofy the whole time. And uh, it drove everyone crazy. He said it was so unprofessional. Well, now Jim Carrey is an older man and you watch his interview. More recently, there was one in which he said that Jim Carrey doesn't exist. Jim Carrey is just another character that plays other characters. I have no identity. I've lost it all. 
I'm just a man who plays characters. Disorienting to have too many masks on. Disorienting to have so many sins and confess Christ. You have to take those off. The duplicity of Judah is not just with Judah. You lose yourself. You lose yourself. Romans 6. Our old self was crucified with him. That our body of sin might be brought to nothing. Must consider ourselves, he says, dead to sin and alive to Christ. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. See? There is a more real actor in the play. Your sins, the things that you have that are contradictory to the Lord Jesus Christ, are not more powerful than the Lord Jesus Christ, or more real than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is God eternal, incarnate. He is say, which means of himself. He is a subsistence of his own. He relies on nothing, like the fire that burns the bush that is not consumed, that Moses meant in the wilderness. Is Jesus our Lord? He needs no bush for his fire. He needs no fuel for his light. He is God. And if you are alive in him, his righteousness is more real than your sin. As your sin and your whole life is contingent upon his subsistence and upholding you. Therefore, our old man is dead. Our new man has been made alive to God in Christ. And there is no need for masks. Pastorally counseling, speaking with people, when they sometimes might say, I have been doing this or involved in this for years and no one knows. Then, why would you hide? We wear a mask because we want to hide from God. We want to hide from others. We want to hide from ourselves. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, why would you hide from God? He has given his own son to bring you to everlasting life. There is propitiation, no wrath, no anger, no indignation on God's part towards you at all. Why would you cover anything when he has covered you with his own son? And if he thinks you are beautiful, if he thinks you are righteous, if he thinks you are glorious, then why would you hide from other people? What would other people possibly think or care about you? Why wear a mask? Why hide? The reality of hiding from yourself, yes, God's opinion of you is even more important than your opinion of you. So look at yourself in the mirror. Actually, and this is the hard part of confessing sin. The hard part of confessing sin is actually having to look at yourself. But in Christ, there's freedom to do. Because he has already made you righteous. You are free to actually look in the mirror. And if you don't like what you see, it's okay. Because he said he loves you. And you are free to take the mask off. This is why we cover ourselves. He said he has written himself into the play. He has broken through all of our masks. There's a reason the story ends this way. The woman born. Two children. Judah had twins. The first one's hand emerged quickly. The midwife 
Tide, scarlet thread. This one's first. Why is it so important who's first? Everything's riding on who's first. All the brothers want to know who's first. Onan won't even have other children because he doesn't want a firstborn by someone else. The first, the first, the first. The strong, the glorious, the mighty. Get yours, have it, live in the world and find your inheritance, find your wealth, find yourself. You, 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 you. As Jeff was saying, it is you. Get you, get you. So that one first hand went, he's the firstborn, he gets the scarlet thread, he is unique, he is distinct, he is glorious. And then, this littler, weaker one comes out. Pulls, as brothers would do, pulls that hand back and says, I'm coming out, I'm the firstborn. What a breach you have made for yourself, the midwife said. His name is Breach, which is what Perez means. He broke through. Not expected. He wasn't the strong one. He wasn't the first. But he made his way. We won't hear about this guy much more. All we know is when we read from Ruth. That Perez goes from Ruth. And Ruth goes to David. And David goes to Jesus. That Jesus broke through this story. Do you see? It is not a metaphor. This is not a sermon analogy. I am saying organically, by DNA and genetics, that the Lord has broken through this story. This mess of a story. That it's probably better to read when the kids are back there. Right? Can he break through your sin? Do you see how he's broken through all these masks on purpose, organically connected in such a way to break through our sins, our masks, that there is a righteousness of God that isn't made manifest apart from the law. A righteousness of God is made through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we, like Judah, can look at him. See him breaking through our humanity, our wickedness, our genealogies, and say... As we and I say today, he is more righteous than I. If you say that, then you are a Christian. And for the first time, you've had your mask taken off. To say, he is more righteous than I. I see who I am. And I see who he is. And he is altogether righteous. He is broken through. He is of the lineage of Perez. Let us pray. Dear Father. We love confessing. Lord Jesus. That you are more righteous than we. How beautiful it is. Lord thank you. For breaking through all of our masks. Breaking through all of our humanity, our hypocrisy. And being that man with no mass at all. That one true righteous son of God. Lord, now as we behold you, when we see you for who you really are, we'll be like you. So Lord, we ask that you would, mediated by your spirit, let us behold you more clearly. So that we might reflect you more dearly. In Jesus' name, amen.